Welcome to Invisible Tears. This week, we are uh, talking with Bill Thomas and Christy Dilly from Mind Over Murder. It's a great podcast. We had the pleasure of actually meeting them in person in CrimeCon this year. And I can think I can honestly say we all had the one moment that was the most touching moment in CrimeCon for all of us. So welcome, Bill and Kristen, to our show. We appreciate you taking some time. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you having us on. Thank you. Mind Over Murder is the place to go to for information regarding the uh, Colonial Parkway murders. Um, so Bill and Kristen, I know you two are the experts when it comes to that case. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit of why you guys are experts in that case in particular? Kristen, you want to run with that? Sure. Although I feel like because it's your sister's case, you really ought to be the one to go with it. But I'll go ahead and start and then I'm going to kick it to you. So Bill and I have worked in partnership with each other since 2016 on the Colonial Parkway murders case. Um, And clearly it's a case that's impacted his life for quite a while. Um, But it's also a case that's impacted my life because um, living here in Williamsburg, Virginia, which is where the Colonial Parkway murders took place, I sort of grew up with it always in my consciousness. Um, I was one of the generation of kids that were told do not drive on the Colonial Parkway under any circumstances. And when we were asked why, we were told the story about um, the murder of these eight young people. So um, I've been interested in the Colonial Parkway murders pretty much from minute one. And around 2016, I reached out to Bill because I was interested in learning more and sort of upping the advocacy game. And um, after vetting me for (laughs) probably uh, longer than was necessary, but I understand why uh, we, you know, started uh, building this partnership together. Bill, I'm, I'm going to kick it over to you because I've talked long enough. <laughs> well, the vetting is only just to sort out the crazies from the not so crazies. What can I say? <laughs> well, you got a crazy, unfortunately for you. <laughs> Maybe not on the level you're thinking, but. Crazy I can work with. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. All right. So when we talk about the Colonial Parkway murders, we're talking about the murder of eight young people, as Kristen mentioned. Four couples killed approximately one couple a year for four years in a row from 1986 to 1989. And my sister, uh, Kathy Thomas, and her girlfriend, Rebecca Dowski, are the first couple murdered. And then they're followed by uh, murders of three straight couples. Three of the four of them fall in the same time frame, which is kind of that back to school time frame from Labor Day to Columbus Day. And then one of the murders, which is technically actually a disappearance, that's of Keith Call and Cassandra Haley, they disappeared in the spring, but they're the only ones that break pattern in terms of the when the events take place. And there's nothing in the forensics that links the four double homicides in the Colonial Parkway murders. And Kristen and I, along with a lot of other experts, the more we learn about the Colonial Parkway murders, the less we think they're related. So there's nothing scientifically in terms of what the FBI and the Virginia State Police tell us that actually links these cases. It's all circumstantial. There are substantial similarities. It's couples, cars, kind of isolated rural locations to actually occur on the Colonial Parkway, which is federal property, which makes them FBI cases. And then two of them happen 
outside the Colonial Parkway National Park, which makes them Virginia State Police cases. But scientifically, there's nothing to link them. But the the basic circumstances, as I started to say, couples, cars, lovers' lane situations, and there's a sense that someone is approaching couples who've likely already stopped and maybe pulled over and engages with them. And that could mean that this is someone in law enforcement or someone who presents as law enforcement. Uh, Kristen and I have talked about this. I think a lot of us have had this experience of being out on a date with someone that we really like and you end up going parking. Uh, I mean, I certainly think of myself as a much younger man being involved in situations like that. And I also can think of, and I think most of us can, of situations where someone rolled up on us and we thought it was the cops. So the question becomes, is it the cops or not? And is this person well-intentioned, like most law enforcement officers might be? Or is it someone who has ill intentions in terms of them approaching us while we're sitting there? And we're actually kind of more vulnerable than we like to think about. One of the things that we say about the Colonial Parkway murders victims, these are all young people doing young people things. I mean, they may be parking in a, in a car, they may be drinking a beer or smoking a joint, or they may be engaged in romantic or sexual behavior. I don't think any of those things are that wrong that they deserve what happened to them in these four separate incidents. But it's a troubling case. It's a complicated case. And as Kristen and I like to say, there's a lot of rabbit holes you can go down in the Colonial Parkway murders. We feel like we've been down most of them at different times. And sometimes twice. Now, were they all um, the same weapon of choice was used on all these cases? Well, Jane, they're really varied. Um, in the first example, Kathy and Becky are killed using a rope and knives, and there's a clumsy, my word, attempt to set Kathy's car on fire. In incident number two, which follows a year later, um, Robin Edwards and David Nobling are shot to death. Then in incident number three, which I mentioned a moment ago, Keith Call and Cassandra Haley, they're on a first date and they go completely missing and we don't even know how they were killed. Technically, even though it's been 35 years, we actually don't even know for certain that they've been murdered, although the fact that they haven't come home in 35 years, I think is a pretty strong indicator. And then in the fourth incident, Anna Maria Phelps and Daniel Lauer are on Interstate 64. They're actually not even a couple, really. She's dating and is supposed to be ultimately marrying his brother. So he's her boyfriend's brother. They go missing along Interstate 64. Their bodies are found about six weeks later in a hunting area that was owned by a hunt club. And the bodies are so badly decomposed, they're not 100% certain how they died. There are nick marks on one of Anna Maria's hand bones, which were discovered by the Smithsonian Institution. The bodies were in such an advanced state of decomposition, despite it only being six weeks, that they really weren't able to tell exactly how they died, but at least they think Anna Maria may have made a defensive maneuver with her hand, you know, to fend off someone perhaps with a knife. So you end up with a kind of a mixed bag of very different circumstances and actually there's no through line there in terms of weapons except that there's a knife 
used for certain in the first incident, Kathy and Becky, and it looks like a knife could be used in the final incident, Anna Maria and Daniel. Interesting. That's very interesting. Yeah. Is that one of the reasons why you guys aren't completely convinced that all the cases may be connected? I would say that's one of the reasons. Yeah. And there is also just the fact that there is there is so much uncertainty around what happened to Keith Call and Cassandra Haley. I don't think there's any way to discern a pattern until ultimately Keith and Sandra are found, which we are still hoping for. Um, we are very, very much hoping that one of these days they will be found and their families are going to be able to inter their remains. Um, but by not knowing what happened to Keith and Sandra, I feel like that does create a lot more uncertainty because you don't really know, like, is there a through line? If it's possible that, you know, was there a knife used in theirs? If so, then there's knives in three of the cases. Um, was a gun used for them? If so, there's a, a gun in two cases. We really don't know. Um, and I think that creates some uncertainty on my part. Mm -hmm. Some of the experts, we've worked with some FBI profilers and other pretty amazing people over the years. Some of them feel that a gun might be used in the early stages of several of these incidents to establish control. And then once control is established, then a knife is actually the killer or killer's preferred method. But again, they're going out on a little bit of a skinny branch. And, you know, that's some of what profilers do. I w that's what I was going to ask. Did, was there any evidence of any struggle in the vehicles or were they taken from outside? Were they already outside the vehicles when their incidences happened? There's a little bit of uncertainty on that as well. Um, if you look, for example, at Kathy and Becky's case, there is not enough blood in the car for the car to have been the primary crime scene which does indicate that primary crime scene is somewhere else. We just don't unfortunately know where that somewhere else is. Bill and I have our theories. And if the FBI actually knows, then they have kept it very close to their vest. That is not surprising given our track record with the FBI. They tend to not tell us a lot of things. But in that case in particular, I would have to say that, yeah, very likely they were not maybe rolled up on in the car at some point or another, they were out of the vehicle. But, you know, to what extent, um, it, it's, it's definitely a question uh, that we have had to think about a number of times over the years. Bill, what about the other cases? What are your thoughts on those? Well, Kathy and Becky are the standout in one way in that it appears there was a struggle there, likely outside the car. And Kathy in particular, or my sister had, was a Naval Academy graduate. She had taken extensive martial arts training as part of being a naval officer. And it appears that she had struggled with their attacker or attackers, plural. We, we say singular a lot of times just so we don't say it over and over again, but the idea that it could be multiple offenders is definitely part of the mix. In the other examples, as Kristen's saying, you don't really have that much to work with in terms of, you know, you have nobody in, in one example, Keith and Sandy, and then in the other two examples, the bodies are very badly decomposed. In, in the Robin Edwards, David Nobling example, they spent three days in the water, they believe. So the bodies are not in great shape. And then as we talked about, the bodies in incident number four, Anna Maria Phelps and Daniel Lauer, are badly decomposed. So Jane, you kind of struggle with the exactly how did this happen question. 
God, I have so many questions. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> where do you start? Oh, my mind is working. <laughs> it's so hard not to have those answers after all these years. You would think with, um, especially the FBI involved, the advanced forensics, all this stuff, you would think you would have more, more answers than what you have today. And it doesn't seem that way. No, there's, there's a couple of things going on there. I think, first of all, we're in the 86 to 89 timeframe. So DNA hasn't really come out of the lab yet. Um, I remember in 2010, the FBI called the families together. They briefed us for about five hours about what the status of the investigation was. And one of the things we noticed right away was when they were walking us through all the tools that were available, you know, things like CODIS and APHIS for, for fingerprints and all these other tools, they'd all come online after the Colonial Parkway murders had occurred. So these new developments in terms of advanced forensics that we're also hopeful for, they all come along later. And in some examples, we either have very little evidence or it was badly preserved. And even the crime scenes, they weren't secured back then. Nowadays, if, if a, something terrible happens tonight, you know, that crime scene is going to be very buttoned up and they're going to control who goes in, who goes out to make certain they have as much opportunity to collect evidence as possible. Back then, we literally had dozens of people marching in and out of these crime scenes. There are even rumors that in the Keith Call Cassandra Haley example, they had multiple dog teams climb into the Toyota Celica, Keith's car, to grab a scent and then go search. Now, that was how things were done in 1988. This is completely different than it would be, you know, today or tomorrow with advanced forensics. So we're working backwards, trying to apply new science to, quite frankly, messy, contaminated, sometimes compromised crime scenes. I know what that's all about today, because <laughs> uh, that's what they're trying to do with, uh, uh, with mine. Yeah, it's um, back then they didn't have it, but they didn't know that the new forensics was going to come. So they didn't preserve a lot of things that, the, that they should have uh, done. So someone who's asking you questions in 2023, there's a lot of, I'm sure, because we hear it all the time, well, why didn't they do this and why didn't they do that? And, you know, again, we're talking about crime scenes that extend back into the 80s when things were done very differently. If your head's not already spinning enough, <laughs> there are at least 150 persons of interest in the Colonial Parkway murders. Mm-hmm. Wow, I did not know that. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of people. Now, sometimes the law enforcement experts have said to us, there's a long list, 150 plus, and then there's probably a short list. I'm not saying there's actual lists, but my guess is, based on what experts have told us and our law enforcement investigators, there's probably 10 or 15 people that are on the short list that is most likely and then there's 150 people or more on the the long list being up front as always though on the short list i would say at least half of them are law enforcement really mm -hmm. 
law enforcement officers, current, current, many of them would be retired now. And again, I'm not saying it was a cop, but there are things about these murders that look like cops could be involved. Now, Bill, I did have one question for you when talking about persons of interest. What was your thought when Michael Nicolau was brought up in connection to the Colonial Parkway murders? Yeah, let's get the elephant out of the room. <laughs> <laughs> let's do that. Kristen and I have lots of elephants. <laughs> oh, lots of elephants and they're crowding in the room. Yeah. Well, <sighs> my discomfort with Michael Nicolau as a suspect in the Colonial Parkway murders. First of all, there are some things that do fit. Michael Nicolau was in Virginia. We can put him in Virginia, he and his wife having a baby in the hospital in Virginia, probably less than an hour away, a few weeks before Kathy and Becky were murdered. So we can actually put him in Virginia. My problem with Michael Nicolau as a suspect is that I felt like the detective who was pushing that perspective was trying to ram Nicolau into every available open case, you know, I got very frustrated at one point and said, you got to focus on what you can prove. You, you know, you've got Michael Nicolau being involved in every unsolved murder on the East coast from the Lindbergh baby on forward. I mean, it's insane. Every couple of weeks, my phone would ring and it would be the same detective saying, Oh, I found another case and it's Michael Nicolau. And it's like, just because you found another unsolved homicide somewhere on the East coast from, you know, Massachusetts or New Hampshire to, to the Carolinas doesn't necessarily mean that Michael Nicolau was involved. I think Michael Nicolau was a horrible human being and may have been involved in other unsolved murders. I just struggle with, he can't be your catch-all boogeyman for every single unsolved murder, you know, in that stretch of coastline. It's first of all, there are hundreds and hundreds of murders. And I kept saying, focus on what you can prove. I do find it intriguing that Nicolau was within an hour or so of the location of the colonial parkway murders, but that's all we've got. To, if that's all we've got to go on, you know, so were millions of other people. I agree. I agree. I um I I too agree. He was not a good person. I mean, obviously he killed his uh I believe he killed Michelle, his first wife or second wife. Uh I believe that yeah, he did kill his wife and stepdaughter down in Florida. So he was a terrible person. I don't know that he to go to the the extent to say he was a serial killer. I just never, um, I never saw any proof in that. I, I just always needed more and, and this detective just could never give more. Uh, it was, she'd find something and she'd make it fit. But if she found something that didn't fit, she didn't share that with you. <laughs> yeah, that, that. That's the part that disturbed me. In other words, yes, one factoid, if you will, is interesting. It really is. And it can make your antenna go up and you can think, wow, that's interesting. I didn't know that, for instance, he was in the area at that time. His wife had a baby in a hospital in Virginia. But then it's like, well, wait a minute, where's the rest of the fact pattern? You've got to be able to show more. And this is where 
we ran into problems with law enforcement because law enforcement investigators are, they're looking for facts. They're looking to build a, a story, a case, a reason why they should be looking for this particular person at this particular time. I think they're willing to do that. But if they start to see, you know, the chips adding up and they say, now, wait a minute, you know, let's just say, and this isn't true in the Nicolau example that I'm aware of, but let's just say he was arrested for, you know, some other minor crime, you know, in that area, or he bought a gun or, you know, in other words, start building on that original interesting piece of information. Now you're going to get your investigators wheels turning, but I never saw that in the Nicolau example. No, I, I didn't even. I would say one of the most frustrating things about this case is not just the Michael Nicolau of it, but the every other person who in very, very good, you know, kind intentions reaches out to us and says, here's another serial killer from somewhere on the East Coast. Let's kind of do the rundown. So it, it reached a point where Bill and I were getting tips. It would be like, who's this one about? It's a Michael Nicolau tip, put it in one box. This is an Edward Edwards tip, put it in another box. This is a Zodiac tip, put it in a third box. And it it sort of becomes this list of, okay, which rabbit hole are we going down today? Well, today we're going down the Michael Nicolau rabbit hole. Let's run it down with cases that are as confounding, but also as, as very interesting as this one. You do get a lot of people who want to pick and choose their their, their their pet theories, if you will, or their, um, you know, person of choice, and then try to fit them in. Like Bill was saying, you try to slot them in into various places. Um, so that's how you get people saying, well, the Zodiac is probably responsible for the Colonial Parkway murders. He doesn't fit exactly, but okay, sure, we're willing to run with you to a certain extent. Um, it, it becomes a very long and drawn out process that becomes fraught with have we heard about this person? Yes, we have. We can set that aside for now. Or no, we haven't heard about this person. Let's go ahead and check them out, run, run some stuff down. So I feel like we're kind of constantly doing research um, on who is this person? Have we heard about them before? And do we think they're a likely possible suspect? Yeah, I mean, I have so many people come to me all the time. Matter of fact, I just got an email last night <laughs> Uh, like 16 pages long of this lady messaged me and told me all about her neighbor that she truly believes he was the Connecticut River Valley serial killer. And it's like people keep, you know, everybody wants to solve these. They believe that they can solve these after all these years. And it's, you don't want to be rude and you, you, you absolutely value their tips because, I mean, we all know that cases like these are not going to be solved unless it, it usually is that one good tip that comes in that breaks a case. So you always want the tips to come in. But what I found is that they're contacting me and I had to finally, I, I mean, I was like Googling this person and Googling that person and looking this one up and looking that. And I finally had to come to the point and say, you know, for my own one, my mental health, it's not up to me to solve these cases. It's up to the authorities to solve my case. And um, that's so that's when 
the whole thing came about with my struggles with law enforcement and, you know, who is looking at my case and where do I send these people? And, you know, if I send these people to you, are you really looking at these cases? And uh, we just did a big rally um, up here in New Hampshire and from, well, New Hampshire and Vermont, but mostly New Hampshire. Uh, we marched to the AG office and, you know, now I have a contact person where if somebody can, you know, contacts me and wants to give me all this info, I don't have to investigate it. It's not my job to investigate it. I have this contact person now that I can give this information to. But it, it, you have to have a lot of trust in law enforcement that they're even looking at this stuff. I mean, is that something that you guys have come across? Well, Given the level of disappointment in the Colonial Parkway murders with a lack of follow-up in many examples, it's really hard to just hand something off to the FBI or the Virginia State Police and hope they're going to get around to it because we've been disappointed any number of times. And it's unfortunate. There's a significant amount of tension, which this may surprise people who haven't lived this, but Behind the scenes, things are not always rosy between survivors and victims and law enforcement because at the same time, when you're trying to find out simple questions, I've heard you talk about this, Jane, with us on Mind Over Murder and, and other interviews you've done, and we've run into the same thing where you're trying to find out, well, is someone going to follow up on this? Is someone going to check this out? Now, we had a very interesting thing happen at CrimeCon we had two sets of people who came up to us. This was actually before Kristen had arrived. She was flying in from Virginia. I came in from Connecticut. Her flight was delayed by mechanical problems, not her, not her issue. She doesn't fix airplanes. And two different sets of people came up to me with new tips in the Colonial Parkway murders. And we followed up and passed those on to law enforcement but not without a fair amount of um, behind-the-scenes <laughs> tension because I dropped the ball, for example, and some people that follow us know this happened. I dropped the ball on uh, a couple walked up to me. They wanted to meet Kristen, and I explained Kristen wasn't there yet, so they said they were going to come back the next day. But we ended up chatting, and they had a significant tip in the Colonial Parkway murders. So they came up and said, hi, we're so-and-so. And um, we've been following the case for a number of years. They live in Virginia. They listen to the podcast. They're big fans of Mind Over Murder. They said, we wanted to meet you in person. And that's nice. And they said they really wanted to meet Kristen as well. And that happens a lot. We often find if the other podcast partner isn't there, yeah. we'll always say, oh, I wanted to meet so-and-so. <laughs> <laughs> People are excited to meet Kristen. They'll say, oh, I wanted to meet Bill. And the same thing when I was there, people were like, oh, I really wanted to say hello to Kristen. And of course, we encouraged them to come back or, or get in touch with us. But in this example, I dropped the ball. The two people actually had something that I thought was quite significant. And here's where I failed. Unlike a situation like we're here, I'm in my home office talking with you guys. I've got my two Macs going here and I've got my, you know, pad and my pen and I'm ready to go. You know, in that example, I've been up at two 30 in the morning that morning to fly to crime con, you know, up at two 30 out at three 30 plane you know, airport at four flight at six. And then Kristen is delayed 
in coming in from Virginia. So it's the first day we've just opened up. I'm a little overwhelmed and a little exhausted. I'm not making excuses because I'm really upset with myself for what happens next. These two people come up and start telling me this and I realize, oh, this could be significant based on what they're saying. I somehow don't get their information. I don't get their email or, or phone and Kristen's nodding her head. <laughs> and this wouldn't happen if I were at home and comfortable and you know ready to go. I should have thought to get their info, but I didn't. And they were said they were going to come back the next day, which is Saturday, the first full day of, of CrimeCon. And they were, wanted to meet Kristen. Well, somehow we never connected with them again. Nope. Mm -mm. Uh, they never made so, it back. So I remembered everything they told me, mm -hmm. but I didn't have their contact info. So when I'm uh. back, we're back from CrimeCon. I'm talking to the FBI. I'm filling them in. They naturally say, uh, can we have their contact info? I don't have it. And they are furious. And they're, oh not, they're not wrong. Our, our agent wasn't wrong to be pissed at me because I dropped the effing ball on this one. So then Kristen and I do everything we can to figure out who are these people. But the problem is we have, we're pleased about this, but we have thousands and thousands of listeners and we weren't able to figure out who they were right away. And so then we brainstorm, we start talking about, okay, how can we get a hold of these people? We end up putting up notices on social media, first a little vague and then a little bit more specific, you know, and then frantic. Yeah. <laughs> and then frantic. <laughs> Increasingly trying to figure out how can we get a hold of these people? We really need to talk to these people. And then we end up deciding we're going to put notices in our own podcast. So the next mm -hmm. couple of episodes, we started off the podcast with me, you know, telling the short version of that little story there. And then weeks go by and one of our people, the CrimeCon people became aware of it because we ran with a suggestion that a listener had made. A listener said, why don't you put up a notice on the CrimeCon discussion groups on social media? And we said, that's a really good idea. So we put up the notice and wouldn't you know, it took two weeks, but the, <laughs> they did get back to us. And then I was able to pass that on to the FBI for follow-up. And the FBI was really excited and stopped yelling at me for my, you know, my, look, I failed. And, and, you know, even the FBI agent who's known me for years said, this is really not like you. I'm sorry, go ahead. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. And now back to our episode. No, here's the thing that really makes me mad about that, Bill, like on your behalf. Okay. And I, we're not supposed to be slagging the FBI, but they're not going to be listening to, they're not going to be, they're used to us slagging the FBI on, on mind over murder. They don't know we're here. So we, 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 we can do a little bit of, we can do a little bit of, of bashing them here. It really makes me angry. This double standard that the FBI has, they are the ones who are investigators. They are trained to do this stuff. Bill is not an investigator. He is not trained to do this stuff. He is a human being. He had been up since two in the morning. He had, you know, flown. He had set up everything at CrimeCon. He was doing a ton of stuff. 
He got, you know, swamped that first day. And then afterward, he had a whole series of other meetings. We had a cocktail party that we went to. We had a ton of stuff going on. You would think that the FBI, who has done more than their fair share of screwing up on this case, could be at least a little bit, you know, worthy of granting some grace to Bill and go, hey, man, like, look, this doesn't sound like you. And no, it's not. Normally, B- Bill takes more notes than any other human being I have ever met, ever. <laughs> he records everything. <laughs> He's recording this right now. <laughs> <laughs> like, I have seen his notebooks. It's insane. But I mean, yeah, he didn't have a notebook with him that day. But it really, really makes me angry that the FBI went absolutely nuclear on him about the fact that when he was really tired and frazzled and everything else, he made a mistake. Whoops, it could happen to any of us. The FBI went nuclear and it really makes me angry. Like they have screwed up any number of times. Please grant this guy who is really trying hard to get answers in his sister's case, grant him a little bit of grace and courtesy. It really makes me mad. Well, even the, even the crime con folks actually got involved and they were like, what can we do to help you figure out who these people are? There were actually two sets of people yeah. back to back. The first couple and then two other people came up to me immediately after, as soon as they walked away. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this is like Tipville here at. at." (laughs) And this is not something as fantastic as crime kind is. And it really is. We don't expect to get active tips Mm -mm. every time we go to crime con. We did. Did (laughs) We we actually did. Yeah, we got a couple. And interestingly, these, the second uh, pair of people was two women. They actually, we actually knew their names because they comment frequently on our social media pages Mm -hmm. and often have like really interesting and um, thoughtful things to say. So when they introduced themselves, I was like, oh my gosh, so great to meet you. You know, we knew who they were. And interestingly, they also wanted to meet Kristen like everybody else does. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why. <laughs> they actually came back. It's because you're special. They came back on Saturday to meet Kristen and they actually came back on Sunday and we ended up you know, chatting with them. And they actually had significant information in the Colonial Parkway murders as well. So we got their information and passed that on to law enforcement as well. But Jane, to your point, fascinating that people would wait until a big conference like CrimeCon to come up to all of us and talk to us about our cases. Mm. Yes, actually, the tip that was actually the main tip that I'm thinking about that was actually received in regards to Jane, they were the people were actually too nervous to even actually approach and or give Jane the information it was given to members of the crawl space team instead in to give to Jane actually. And then they just, you know, oh, disappeared. Wow. Was it because they thought you were scary, Jane? Because you're such a nice person. <laughs> I, I, I know. I know. I well, Everybody not, else wanted to meet me. <laughs> unless they thought yeah. it would upset you or something maybe. like that. Yeah. I, yeah, I think that's what maybe. it was. Mm-hmm. Yep. Maybe that possibly was it. And then also, I mean, the t- the other tip that I said, we got a couple, um, one of the other tips that actually ended up coming in, the timing of it was just, it could have been a coincidence, mm-hmm. but the timing occurred and it was very specific wording about somebody submitting some very specific information through our website. 
you know, detailing names, that sort of thing. And it, it was the timing of it was odd. So, um, even though that actually didn't come in specifically from a person in CrimeCon, it came in through our website while we were at CrimeCon, actually after the first day that CrimeCon kicked off, it came, came into us that night. Yeah. It was almost scripted. I like, like, yeah, it was almost, uh, coded yeah, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. secret code, you know, Mm-hmm. Uh, One of the things that, that Krista and I have said about uh, true crime podcasting is that if you are a crime victim or a survivor and you want to keep the media spotlight shining on your case with the hope that new information will come through, something that will help law enforcement to move the case forward. Obviously, I don't think everybody has to start their own podcast but I think the fact that you all have Invisible Tears and Dark Valley, two different podcasts, talking about your case is incredibly helpful because if you want people to come forward with new information, maybe situations have changed as you know, law enforcement tells us, this is one of the ways to do that is for you to use these tools and we feel the same way. We don't talk exclusively about the Colonial Parkway murders but we do return to the topic, you know, from time to time. And we certainly appreciate the fact that like these two sets of people came up to us. And it's funny. That was something else that Kristen and I were a bit baffled by was we've made ourselves pretty easy to find here, but these people wanted to talk to us face to face, which we thought was very interesting. Yeah. People are more, I mean, I've had people come to my house uh, versus, you know, messaging me or sending me an email or 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 uh, messaging me on Facebook. I've had people that weren't comfortable with that. They literally come to my house and oh, knock wow. on my door. <laughs> so I don't know that I, I'd be but, okay with that. <laughs> oh, I wasn't. Oh man. But the thing was was what frustrated me, which was why we started the why we did the rally back in August was these people were telling me, you know, I'd be like, you need to give this information to Concord, to the law enforcement, to the, the AG office up in Concord, New Hampshire. And their response was, we've already done that. And we don't feel like that they're looking into this information. Right. We haven't heard back from them. They're not, um, you know, communicating with us any further. And so because they feel like they weren't heard, they come to me thinking that I can bring the information to them and and they can be heard. So that is one of the things that they're, uh, since we've done the rally is, um, because I wasn't the only one that this was happening to, there was other uh, families and and families of missing and and, uh, cold cases in New Hampshire where, um, you know, tips are coming in, and these families, uh, they were coming to the families, which, because they felt like the tips weren't being, you know, being heard up there. Um, so with the rally, that's that's changed them. Now they they communicate back to the people that, or they're supposed to be communicating back to the people that have given the tips and say, okay, we've got the tips. We're we're looking into it. We assure you. So. I mean, I I have not always had a great relationship with law enforcement either, mm-hmm. except, you know, 
with with my case and and the Connecticut River Valley cases. And there's been a lot of words that have been exchanged between myself and them. And and it's hard because you got to trust them. You know, I, I have to trust them that they're doing their jobs. You know, this is not my job to solve this. This is your job to solve this. And I just need you guys to, you know, hear. Be, these people want to be heard and I need you to hear them. Um, and, and with a little compassion, because that's a lot of, that's a lot what we have found in, in New Hampshire is lack of compassion for victims, the victims, victims' families. Uh, same, same with us. Absolutely. And it makes me feel better on some level that you've had your problems. Not that I feel good about the fact that you've had problems, but at least it's not just us. Exactly. Right. That's what we found at the rally. I mean, I was, we were expecting people to show up to support us and stuff for the rally. And, you know, I'm standing there and I'm looking at all these other people holding pictures of their loved ones, having the same grievances as I have. And for all these years, I felt like I was the only one. I felt so alone Mm -hmm. that day. I did not feel alone. There was so many of them there with the same exact grievances that I have had. And Julie Murray, um, she's, we did the, actually did the rally with her. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, it was just eye opening. I just couldn't believe it. I, I, I just couldn't believe that they, and these are cold, cold cases, 30 years old, you know, and all these people wanted was communication. And, you know, same with myself, communicate with us, show us a little compassion, do your jobs. (laughs) You know, you you work for us. We do not work for you, (laughs) you know, do your jobs. And uh, so hopefully, hopefully my relationship with them will be better. I'm hoping because I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't solve anything. It doesn't help the situation if, I don't have a very good communication or a good relationship with them. Mm -hmm. You know, it's counterproductive. Well, in that way, and we're big Julie Murray fans here. She's awesome. She's amazing. Yeah. Big shout out, Julie. We love you. (laughs) Amazing. But the compare, the opportunity to compare notes for the families in New Hampshire who are dealing with the exact same thing, but didn't realize that other families were having the same problem with lack of communication, lack of respect, lack of follow-up, or what feels like lack of follow-up, that to be able to get together with other people, like you're saying, Jane, is actually really healthy because at least then you realize I'm not going crazy you know, I do feel like I'm, I'm being ignored or gaslighted even worse. Mm -hmm. And to at least see that other people have faced the same challenges. And it sounds like you're beginning to build a better relationship with the AG's office and your New Hampshire state investigators and other people that can help you solve cases So I think a lot of good things came out of that rally in New Hampshire. Oh, it sure did for a lot of families. Yeah. They've met with a lot of families that haven't met with them for over 20, 30 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
Yeah. So yeah, it, it's that rally helped many families. Well, this banging your head against the wall experience is something that, you know, we've talked quite a bit about mm -hmm. on, on mind over murder, because that's a real problem. I recently had our FBI investigator challenging me when I wasn't coming through with mm -hmm. the contact info. She was saying, you're trying to solve the Colonial Parkway murders. And I said, I am not qualified to solve the Colonial Parkway murders or any other case. I'm not an investigator. I'm not trained law enforcement. I don't have the resources or the background to do it. I said, I'm actually trying to get you all to solve the Colonial Parkway murders. I can't solve my sister and these other victims' cases. Kristen can't either. We're just looking to you, law enforcement partners, to step up and do, do what you do and not ignore us and not, you know, feel like we're constantly being pushed to the back burner. Oh, exactly. You don't want them to forget. And that was our big thing up at the rally, too, that we brought up. It's like we felt like a lot of these cases, uh, cold cases, were being forgotten. And once people forget the cases, mm -hmm. they forget the cases, and then they're not looked at as often as they should be looked at. And that's one of the things that we have started with the advocating is we're not going to let them forget anything. <laughs> we're not letting them uh, forget cold cases because if we do they forget them and they'll never be solved uh or even looked at so yeah that's that's one of our big things is don't let them forget well one of the things we were told and you know we've ended up talking to a lot of people over the years this idea that oh your case your sister's case is subject to a cold case review then i talked to people that have actually been in the room and a cold case review consists of anything new in the Colonial Parkway murders? Nope. Okay, next. That's a cold case review. That's crazy. And just so frustrating to, you know, to hear that from insiders. So these people would be retired law enforcement who've been in the room when those discussions have taken place. And I get the fact that we need to spend more money on law enforcement more money on forensics, more money on cold case squads. And we're obviously putting money in the wrong places in terms of solving cases like this. And when Kristen and I talk about the fact that, you know, we were using a figure of 250,000 cold case homicides across the United States, which came from the Murder Accountability Project. Now I've heard, but haven't confirmed yet, we heard a new number at CrimeCon that the number actually may be 350,000 cold case homicides wow. in the Unbelievable. So this ought to be a national scandal at this point. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of unsolved homicides. And the solve rate, the close rate, as they call it, for homicides is dropping each year. When I was a kid, which is a long time ago now, the solve rate was over 90%. The solve rate now is in the mid 60s so it's actually going down each year that is getting worse more unsolved homicides fewer solves as they say or closed cases we're headed in the exact wrong direction the thing is i know we all like watching shows like csi and 
Law and Order and all those shows that seem to wrap up a case in 48 minutes. Well, that's not the reality because we've all lived it. Yeah, it's so true. It's not. It's not reality. Drew, what do you have to add to that? Because I know you like statistics. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's interesting because even with the case closing rate dropping, we've been noticing, at least up here in New Hampshire, we're seeing a lot of bodies turn up that are just being labeled as not suspicious, even though they're just male bodies showing up in a river. No idea how they got there but they're just being labeled as not suspicious. We're like, okay, is that their way to kind of skirt around that solved case rate to make sure it doesn't look too negative by just labeling a lot of these cases that they have no idea what might be happening. It's just, eh, it was just an accident. It's not suicide. It's not homicide. Just an accident. So we don't have to worry about it. Not suspicious. Not suspicious. One of the people that was actually at the rally that was there. Do you guys remember? I'm trying to remember the actual individual's name. Jason something. I do recall that. Yes, Jason. Um, So his family was there at the rally with a picture and they were like, it was labeled as not suspicious. They said that he dropped. There's no way that he did. And they were just searching, simply searching for answers. We had definitely noticed that trend was actually occurring, at least within within the news with what we were seeing. Since 2018, there have been over 215 bodies that have been found along the Merrimack River between New Hampshire and Vermont. And they say there's no serial killer. And they're all labeled not suspicious. Do you mean New Hampshire and Massachusetts? New Hampshire, Massachusetts. Yeah. Merrimack. Yeah. Cause I'm from yeah. Lowell, Massachusetts and the Merrimack runs right through the center. And, of oh, there's been quite a few down in Lowell too. Yeah. I think there's been probably a good 20. Wow. Lowell's a tough town. Yeah. Actually. It's a, if you want to get your butt kicked or worse, Lowell's a good place to, uh, yeah. Yep. That, especially yeah. on Friday and yeah. or Saturday night. But interesting way to manipulate the statistics to Drew's point, which is, oh, by labeling things not suspicious, you're like, wait a minute, how does it we how is it we have dozens and dozens of of young people, mostly men, ending up in the river here? Something's not right here. Yes, there are accidental drownings, but not dozens and dozens of accidental drownings. That seems bizarre. Yeah. 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 And the main yeah. thing that the authorities are coming out with is ODing and then drowning. So apparently it's very rampant of just shooting up heroin or, you know, fentanyl and then just going for a dip. Go out to the river. Yeah. 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 Yes. That is the type of thing that you do like in, while you're in the river. Right. Apparently. Wow. <laughs> there are homeless camps along the Merrimack River down there. But for all these bodies to be found, I don't care if they're homeless i don't care if they're drug addicts i don't care any of that stuff if there's a serial killer or they're being they're murdered their investigation is you know they can't decide whether it's a homicide or not they deserve the same attention with an investigation as anybody else absolutely and i think you know i don't want to i don't want to think this way But the more bodies that, like a couple of weeks ago, there were three more. You know, I don't want to think that they're not properly investigating it because of their lifestyle. 
but I can't help but think that way. I mean, they they will record, they will put in the paper that afternoon a body was found on the Merrimack River. By the next day, reporting, they're already saying it's not suspicious. How within twenty four hours are you doing a proper? You're not. Uh, you're not. Mm -mm, you're, you're not. not. You're not. And this is what we're finding. This is what I'm wow. seeing constantly. And it's just like, I don't care what your lifestyle is. You know, you deserve the same investigation as anybody else that that were that has been murdered. And it just drives me crazy. I, I just I hate thinking that way, but I can't help but think that they're not being treated the same. Well, let me give you an example. Kristen and I interviewed Christine Pelasek for Mind Over Murder. Christine Pelasek is a, a true crime writer and wonderful writer in general who works for People Magazine. And so you see her byline frequently. And she wrote a book on the Grim, Grim Sleeper. The Grim Sleeper case uh, in South Central LA. And there were dozens, if not hundreds, ultimately, of murders in South Central during the crack epidemics of the 1980s. And apparently the LAPD, the Los Angeles Police Department, used to use a code, even over the radio, oh, and they would write this on the files. Uh, I think it was NHI, no humans involved. It would be homicides, but they'd be homicides of mostly women that were involved in sex work, but were also addicted to crack, which is how you know these two things ended up being entwined. And it was a terrible time to be a cop in, in South Central, but they would dismiss these murders as NHI, no humans involved, which meant this is going to receive no time, attention, and resources. Just another dead prostitute to use the language of the day. And that was it. They were just swept under the rug. So these bodies that were literally piling up in alleys and dumpsters in South Central were completely ignored, which is how Lonnie Franklin, who was ultimately convicted for a number of these murders and likely was linked to many more. Mm -hmm. They had dozens and dozens of photographs. He used to take photographs of his victims. They still had, when he died a couple of years ago, dozens of photographs of unidentified young women, photographs that he took that were in his possession. They still don't know who these women are. That's also how there ended up being five serial killers operating in South Central Los Angeles around the same time period, including Samuel Little and Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. All of them were working in South Central LA in the same time because people were just disregarding, you know, the victims. No humans involved because they are lifestyle. I just can't believe that no human, that NHI, NHI, the no humans involved. Like, just think about that. Imagine being the family and hearing that. And apparently, oh. they'd even say it over the radio. An, another crack addict, uh, body dumped in an alley, NHI, and, and that that was it. So when you all talk about all of these strange situations, and Drew saying. You know, just how is it possible that dozens of, of people's bodies are being dumped in the river? I don't think this is all accidental drownings or overdoses. Could that be part of the mix? Absolutely. But could someone be attempting to victimize a vulnerable community? That seems like a likely outcome. 
Yeah, when I first when we first were hearing about the case, I started doing a little research and I did find which I did find interesting was males actually are twice as likely to drown versus females. Um, so because I was like, is it really possible to have that many males with this few females ending up drowning? So I was like, OK, a little bit of the research to show that the chances of more men turning up is kind of plausible. But to the rate that it is in sort of the area along that river going all the way from yeah the Lowell area all the way up past Concord, just a little fishy. Wow. Yeah, very, very, very suspicious. Bill, tell me about your sister. Tell me, I want to hear about her. I want to hear what what she was like, and did you have a close relationship and growing up with her? What was she like? Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Invisible Tears. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast to hear all future episodes. Click into our link tree too in the episode description to find and follow us on all our social medias. And it also links to our website, invisible-tears.com, where you can keep current on any events that may be coming up, read more about Jane and the team, and read more about all the Connecticut River Valley unsolved cases. If you want to learn more about my wellness practice, Guided Path Wellness, head to guidedpathwellness.org. There you can read more about me and my certifications, more about the Reiki and coaching services I offer both in person and remote, and read all about my products for sale that I make through the practice. Feel free to utilize the contact us section on the website with any questions or utilize that free 15 minute consultation booking button if you have any questions about what might work for you. Evil may exist in this world, but we will not let it win. See you next episode.